Welcome to the Clear Story Podcast. My name is Sarah James, and I'm the founder, director, and editor of Clear Story Magazine. Clear Story Magazine provides space for writers, artists, activists, and seekers to engage subjects at the intersection of action and contemplation. Centuries of contemplatives and community leaders alike have drawn bridges between inner and outer work. Meister Eckhart, the great 13th century philosopher and mystic, writes, what we plant in the soil of contemplation, we shall reap in the harvest of action. In other words, the virtues we cultivate within ourselves spill over and course throughout the work we do in the world. For our second issue, Clear Story writers and contributors have responded to the theme community. For the last four months, we've processed belonging, loneliness, and grief, love and friendship and loss, locality and neighborliness, storytelling and peace building, liberation and the lack of it, human interconnectedness, and life together. We began our series on community one month after the riot attack on the American Capitol and two weeks after the inauguration of President Joe Biden in the midst of an ongoing and destructive pandemic. It was a hopeful, tired, grief and relief-filled moment. A quotation from Archbishop Desmond Tutu grounded our work. My humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. Now we're concluding our conversations on community, perched on another interesting threshold. As we're about to step out of isolation and back into a world, quote-unquote, returning to normal. But both returning and normal are distorted, inadequate concepts. The pandemic further revealed injustice and deepened existing inequality. Pre-pandemic, business as usual, was neither life-giving nor life-affirming. Normal was injustice and inequality. Normal meant dehumanizing realities like police brutality, racism, violence, mass violence, instability, xenophobia, sexism, to only name a few. For over a year, we have grieved alone. We've placed cloths over our faces to protect others. We've gone without forms of human connection that we need to endure the brutal parts of life. We want to return to our communities, our community spaces, to our friends and vulnerable family members. Of course that is true. But we are emerging into a world which has been transformed by pain. Richard Rohr writes, I've often said that great love and great suffering, both healing and woundedness, are the universal, always available paths of transformation because they are the only things strong enough to take away the ego's protections and pretensions. After this year, we have been filled with the felt knowledge of great love and great suffering, of both healing and woundedness. 
How will we use this transformation to make our communities more compassionate in ways that allow us all to be fully human? Today on the podcast, we're sharing three stories from Clear Story's second issue. First, Kimi Bryson shares a creative nonfiction piece, Pittsburgh, a reflection on moving and love in the time of the pandemic. Emma McDonald shares an essay on epistemic trust, community, and the QAnon conspiracy. And Anushri Singh shares Coconut, a moving personal essay on self-belonging and her identity as an Indian American woman. I say this often as the editor of Clear Story. The stories we tell together shape who we become together. Thank you for being here, for listening to and receiving these stories with grace as we practice being human together. This is Pittsburgh by Kimi Bryson, read by Kimi Bryson. This is Tia. Oh, she's so cute. She's old as what she is. I got her when she was a puppy for my mom years ago, but my mom passed away and now she's mine. They say no pets, but who's going to make me get rid of her? I kept her and she got grandfathered in. We're thinking of getting a dog. I think Howard would go for it if you asked nicely. We hope so. Ron is my favorite part of this new city. He's an indeterminate age and sexual orientation, but I'm pretty sure he's gay and in the 60s. He lives in the apartment below us diagonally, which is nice, because sometimes we work out inside. His dog is small and fuzzy, like a terrier, but she hasn't barked in five years. She has seizures sometimes, and Ron said we'd be able to hear them, but I don't think I can. When I run into Ron, we speak from a distance, both masked, over six feet apart. Today, the greater the distance from new people, the safer I feel. We excitedly greet each other, hungry, eyes lit with the possibility of a new element amidst the endless repetition of our solitary days. Outside my apartment, he's the only human constant, the only person I know by first and last name, the second person we met the first day we moved here. He's our entryway into the city. His suggestions are our guidebook. His descriptions fill in our blanks. Have you tried Mextex? No, I haven't even heard of it. Oh, it's the best. There's one in Shadyside, one in... They have this Thanksgiving dinner burrito. It has turkey, stuffing, corn, everything, and gravy and cranberry sauce on the side. That's amazing. It is. They brought it back in March when all this started. It's like a comfort food. I've had four in a week. And then I read the nutritional info, and I shouldn't have had four. We chuckle. Our masks mask some words, but I don't ask for clarification. We'll have to try it. Thanks for the suggestion. Anytime. Tia takes a hop step, apparently ready to resume her walk, and we wave and part. I migrate towards the driveway, he down the front steps. I breathe deeply, smile to myself as I walk up the stairs, feel human again. I say we now, becoming someone I didn't anticipate. This move, in, together, was unplanned. Part of the spiral of the world falling apart an attempt to hold something together. Not the relationship, like Hail Marys in movies and maybe in life, but myself. 
In March, the possibility of months self-isolating with my roommate in New Jersey felt untenable. So I chose the only option that felt like an option. A series of temporary homes. Baltimore, New Haven, and now Pittsburgh. Sometimes going in between, sometimes staying put indefinitely, but always together. And usually for me, I'm unwilling to go off on my own, unexcited about a free fall into the emptiness of this world or the blankness of my mind. We almost only talk to each other. Other people zoom in from Denver, New Haven, Wisconsin, Boston, Chicago. But most days it's just us. So I fill the quiet with other voices. Podcasts, interviews, Gilmore Girls, books for class on tape. I surround myself with people talking, people thinking aloud, people reading something they wrote. I crave new voices, other people's thoughts and reflections and recollections. Tidbits of other people's lives make up for the time not dropping eaves in coffee shops or over dinner at a restaurant. They take up the time and space of isolation, so it's less. Not full or fulfilling, but cloudy and jumbled up, the voices clashing together like the end of the pilot of succession. I consider meditation, decide against it. I'll let the clouds stay for a while. The stress of the world falling apart makes our little love bubble the only thing left to pop, so periodically one of us pops it. Like a cranky porcupine on the defense, I bristle at a well-meaning suggestion. He snaps, cooped up and socially starving. But we both know I'm not leaving. He's not going anywhere. And we're content here, together, so we mend it before it slips away. Our arguments, shorter now, with fewer words, almost always end the same way. Someone makes coffee and pours two cups, or an extra glass of wine, and the following exchange. Is that for me? Yeah. Thank you. American Dependence Epistemic Trust and the QAnon Conspiracy The COVID-19 pandemic has made it clear just how much we depend on one another. We count on those around us to take the public health precautions that will curb the spread of the virus, on essential workers to care for our health, to provide us with food, to keep public spaces clean. Spending over a year sequestered in our homes, lacking social interaction, Underscore how much we depend on time with friends, conversation with colleagues, and small talk while waiting in line to see life as fulfilling. Our dependence on others may seem obvious, but it is not always an easy lesson to absorb. Many Americans are taught from an early age that independence is integral to being American. The origin story of our country narrates a dramatic rupture from dependence on a colonizing power to the formation of an independent republic with liberty and justice for all. We see these values deployed constantly, from people on Instagram advising their followers to follow your truth, to more sinister uses. Those attacking the Capitol on January 6th appealed to notions of freedom, liberty, and independence to justify their violent invasion in response to the fictional threat of election fraud. The insurrectionists clearly failed to practice what they preached. Participating in an angry mob, motivated by collective delusion, undercuts its own appeals to free thinking and independence. 
The rise of the QAnon movement and of broader conspiracies regarding election fraud may remind us of the value of independence, but that is only because they themselves show the perils of misplaced dependence. We all depend on other people for knowledge, but as is evident from our politically polarized society, many people disagree about who proves to be trustworthy sources of knowledge. Followers of Q, an internet poster claiming to be a high-level government officials with, official with Q clearance, depend on Q for knowledge. They trust Q to tell them the truth. In followers of QAnon, we can see the danger in misplaced epistemic trust. Heidi Graswick defines epistemic trust as concerning one's willingness to take the word of another, to trust in their testimony, form beliefs on the basis of that testimony, and act in accordance with such beliefs. She identifies two conditions typically required to trust another person, termed a testifier, as a knower. One must decide that the testifier is competent and sincere, since it only makes sense to rely on someone's testimony if I have reason to think that the person is competent in the area in question, that is, likely to be in possession of the knowledge I am interested in, and sincere, that is, likely to be trying to convey to me what they take to be true beliefs rather than dupe me. Grasswick emphasizes how social location and power relations influence who we deem trustworthy. In the case of QAnon, Q's assumed identity of an independent government official convinced many people that he was a competent knower, and his appeals to values of independence and free thinking helped people sympathetic to those values and suspicious of the government to trust Q as sincere. As Grasswick notes, Epistemic trust has an affective and attitudinal dimension that contributes to whether we trust someone. Further, judging a testifier as sincere depends on one's confidence that the testifier cares for the agent's interests. By tapping into supporters' frustrations regarding economic challenges and government intervention, and validating the narratives of white Americans that progress toward equality for non-white Americans and of immigrants, constitutes a threat to white Americans flourishing, Q demonstrated care for the interests of white Americans who felt overlooked, and thus gained their trust. Many supporters were predisposed to trust Q, because they were introduced to QAnon through Facebook friends and other internet interlocutors who were seen as sincere and like-minded, and thus trustworthy. While trusting our friends as knowers can often be necessary and strategic, the case of QAnon demonstrates how relationships and social identity can lead people to misjudge the competence of others as knowers and accept untruths. QAnon supporters have not only mistakenly judged Q and its supporters as competent knowers, but they have also ignored the input of friends and family who do not ascribe to QAnon. Many relatives of fervent QAnon supporters express dismay and bewilderment at their parents, siblings, and friends who have embraced conspiracies that depart so dramatically from reality. In response, many supporters of Q accuse their skeptical relatives of accepting the lies of the mainstream media, dismissing them as incompetent knowers who have misplaced their own epistemic trust. The ludicrousness of QAnon theories make it clear that it is the followers of Q that have trusted the wrong knowers. Grasswick distinguishes between responsibly placed trust, meaning trust granted in cases in which one has good reason to take one's source as trustworthy, 
an irresponsible trust, which occurs when one ignores the reasons right in front of them for thinking that a source is not trustworthy, but trusts anyways. Why do QAnon supporters trust in Q, despite clear indications that Q is not actually trustworthy? The cost of abandoning QAnon motivates many to stick with the movement, despite evidence of its fabrication. Extrication from the belief system of QAnon is challenging, because it is more than just a provider of knowledge. It offers meaning and community. QAnon supporters may think of themselves as independent free thinkers, but the appeal of the movement stems from its sense of community, of being a part of something beyond yourself. QAnon capitalizes on and distorts the human yearning for recognition and community. Its supporters carry emotional attachment to the movement. In it, they feel recognized, seen, and heard. They feel like they can contribute something of value. The sense of dignity that emerges from a collective commitment to shared ideals is a recognizable good, though its expression in QAnon has gone very badly awry. In QAnon, we see human evolutionary capacities of cooperation and dependence corrupted for violent ends. In theological terms, we call corruption of the good sin. The doctrine of original sin has tended to emphasize pride and selfishness of the individual as the original stumbling block for humanity. But Australian theologian Dennis Edwards reminds us that the human person's fundamental social orientation also bears the mark of original sin. Our cooperative tendencies often lead us to in-group collaboration, nurtured through the shared hatred of a common enemy. The tendency for human beings to draw boundaries based on various kinds of group identity and to proceed to exclude, dehumanize, and disenfranchise those outside our own groups constitutes a fundamental rejection of God. This tendency threatens to drag human communities towards sin, distorting our relations with those beyond our group, even while we may develop positive relationships within our social groups. Many followers of QAnon express fondness for the friends they have gained through the movement. But our sense of community should not have to come at the expense of truth. When we place trust in another knower, we are recognizing them as a source of truth. Part of our task as moral agents is to exercise our epistemic agency well, to trust in pursuit of truth. Thus, trusting others as knowledgeable is a moral act. Edwards argues that we as moral agents need free thinking as a check on in-group collective bias. Preserving our independence in thought helps us to question constructed biases against those othered by the in-group. Of course, we can take this too far as well. Recognizing our inevitable dependence on others for knowledge without abdicating responsibility for epistemic trust suggests that our moral task is to balance between the pitfalls of individual pride and collective bias. Our evolutionary inheritance is both a gift and a curse. As Edwards puts it, Human beings can be open to the spirit of God in both cooperation and in self-affirmation, but both of these also have the potential to become the place of sin. The first step toward recognizing the potential and the risk in our self-interested and cooperative tendencies is seeing clearly that human beings are both dependent and independent. 
Alistair McIntyre, drawing on Aristotle, argues that human existence entails dependence from the very beginning. We are dependent rational animals. As infants and children, we clearly rely on others to survive. But with the proper education and moral formation, we can develop into independent practical reasoners. But our capacity to reason independently does not mean we stop being dependent on others. Throughout our lives, we are vulnerable, prone to accident, misfortune, and error. Thus, we always depend on others, just to varying degrees. In order to live well and flourish, says McIntyre, we need to strive to cultivate the virtues proper to dependent rational animals, namely, virtues of independent rational agency and virtues of acknowledged dependence. Exercising virtues of dependence and independence in our epistemic pursuits can help protect us from the pitfalls of self-interested individualism and collective delusion. This requires us to recognize our responsibilities as agents dependent on others for knowledge. For McIntyre, this involves individual and collective willingness to interrogate our beliefs, biases, and commitments. Because our knowledge is inevitably dependent and shared between agents, our efforts to investigate our biases and examine our beliefs must be undertaken collectively as well. Moral deliberation beyond in-groups gives us the ground to critique, revise, and reject previously held judgments. Even the practice of reasoning is thus characterized by dependence. We depend on the friendship and collegiality of others to help us see errors in our reasoning. Perhaps you, like me, are thinking, easier said than done. It only takes a few minutes scrolling through Twitter threads and Facebook comments to see that our moral deliberation is often miles away from friendship and collegiality. It is much easier to foster friendship and community with those who agree with us. Accounts from people who have managed to leave QAnon behind demonstrate that behind the QAnon supporter is a scared person searching for friendship, community, and a way to make sense of the world. Those leaving the movement recognize that the form of community QAnon provides is based on fear and on lies, but they retain the belief that connection to others matters. Those in recovery from QAnon have established Reddit forums and support groups to give others the support that they need to leave QAnon behind too. One former QAnon believer, Callie Smith, advocates for education around epistemic trust, remarking, We as a society need to start teaching our kids to ask, where is this information coming from? Can I trust it? If we can help our communities exercise their epistemic agency well, recognizing how much we depend on those around us, we can correct the false narratives that perpetuate social inequalities and injustices and bring our country closer to achieving liberty and justice for all. Coconut by Anushri Singh. Red by Anushri Singh. The familiar bell pierces the dewy March air and everyone rushes into the gymnasium, sneakers and sweatbands at the ready. I pull my thick hair up into a ponytail, wincing as I touch the burn on my left ear, another casualty from my daily standing appointment with my straightener. I take a deep, controlled breath 
as the two volleyball captains step out in front of me. Time to recount my traits. I am funny, I am nice, and I am smart. I stare straight ahead and pretend not to notice the thinning crowd around me, willing one of them to see me. Suddenly, I am alone. The captains share that wretched look. Who has to take her? I feel a soft tap on my shoulder, but when I look, there is no one there. I cry into my mom's lap and I ask her why they do not want me. She runs her fingers through my hair and tells me they will never understand. I should focus on befriending the girls who look like me, honor the warriors that I come from. I nod my head, knowing that the price of admission is the color of my skin. They would not dare turn me away. So I cover up my Joe Jonas posters, hide away my golf clubs, and create Bollywood playlists, desperately hoping that my resume meets the cut. The following summer is beautiful. I find a group of girls who do not admonish the hair on my arms or laugh when I cry during a threading appointment. They are in love with Rithik Roshan and do not retch at the smell of cumin. We laugh at our history teacher's understanding of India's independence and commiserate over the pressures placed on our pre-adolescent shoulders. When I look around the room, I see some of the things that I am, and I hope they see me too. One day, I walk down the school hallway, stopping to notice a flyer for golf tryouts when I hear the whispers. She only crushes on white boys, she eats meat, and her Hindi is terrible. A dictionary definition of a coconut. Brown on the outside, white on the inside. I feel a soft tap on my shoulder and I tense up, ready to spit their vial right back at them. When I spin around, no one is there. My dad is asleep on the couch when I slam the door open, heat emanating from my every pore. He listens while I scream injustices and rage over the blood betrayal. When I quiet down, he asks me why I went to them in the first place. After all, I was born in America. I lived my whole life in America. Clearly, I belong with the other Americans. I respond by gesturing to my physical attributes, and he clicks his tongue, telling me that Americans can be whoever they want to be. I throw tarps over all the mirrors in my house and spend the evenings polishing myself head to toe. The neighborhood kids dive deep into mountains of brown leaves as I rehearse airy vocals. I strip and mutilate myself down to my bones and delight in their whiteness. The day of golf tryouts arrives. I hold my head high, demanding to be let in. And, to my surprise, they do. Suddenly I find myself in a whole new world, full of trips to the mall, dates with lacrosse players, and attempts at keg stands. They admire my ear piercings, and I admire their access to life. They claim an entitlement to luxuries I never knew existed. I let this new life envelop me like an old hoodie, thankful to be lost in it. One day, a new girl, Sunena, shows up to tryouts. She has my curls, my hairy forearms, my hooked nose, and my sun-soaked skin. Before I can say anything, I hear the same whispers, only this time... They say it to me. Sunena smells like curry, and her dad works at a gas station. I don't think she'd be a good fit for this group. They see the confusion and hurt on my face and quickly throw out, But not you. You're basically white. I let myself go numb as the blood rushes to my head, and I feel the tap on my shoulder. This time, I do not turn to look. I pack my bags and rush back home, only to find a closed door. 
I knock timidly and watch as the lights are extinguished, one by one. Wrapping my coat tighter, I peer through the side window and see my brothers and sisters dancing in the clothes I grew up with, eating the food I crave, singing the songs in my heart. I stare until the glass fogs up and then turn away, tail between my legs. I could not fault them for leaving me behind. After all, I was the one who pushed them away. As I drag my bags to the end of the driveway, looking at the stars to give me hope, guidance, or even just some light, I feel the familiar tap on my shoulder. The pit in my throat finally dislodges and I fall down to the curb, washing my shirt in tears. I feel my heart strain under the weight of a life I was never promised. And then another tap, more impatiently this time. I look up and am surprised to see Sunena. She asks me why I'm crying and 18 years come spilling out of my mouth. I tell her about my Joe Jonas posters and my favorite langas and the hockey season passes and my relationship with my parents. By the time I am done, the first streaks of light have started to sprout over the horizon as the birds greet a new day. I let go of a breath I had been holding for many lifetimes and close my eyes. When I open them, she asks if she can be my friend. Winter turns to spring and I move into a new place of my own, thousands of miles from everything and everyone I know. The blank walls stretch around me as far as I can see, and I smile. Time to recount my affirmations. I am funny, I am nice, I am smart, and I am me. I sweep my thick black curls back into a bun and start decorating. I hang my Joe Jonas and my Rithik Roshan posters up, carefully taping the curling edges. I cook my favorite dinner and am lulled by the cardamom, cumin, and red chili peppers reaching into the corners of my home. I delicately hang my patterned silks in the closet, taking the time to run my fingers over the ones my grandma sewed for me. Finally, I place a full-length mirror right across from the front door and observe what I see in the reflection. I see my hooked nose, my golf blisters, and my brown eyes, and I smile. Then, the doorbell rings. You've been listening to The Clear Story Podcast. To read and listen to more of our work, visit clearstorymag.com or follow us at Clear Story Mag on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Special thanks to Jeffrey James for audio support and the three writers featured in today's episode. Until next time, may you find peace in the midst of chaos, light in the midst of darkness, hope and healing in the midst of suffering, and may you see it all with the eyes of your heart.